This is from the prophet Isaiah. This is in the 63rd chapter, beginning in verse 7. I will tell of the many kindnesses of the Lord, the things for which he is to be praised, in accordance with all the things he has done, all the good things he has done for Israel, out of his mercy and his compassion. For he said, they are my people, children who will surely be true to me. So he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And with the angel of his presence, he rescued them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. He was the author of the well-known hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. But Phillips Brooks was even more significant in the city of Boston as a teacher, a preacher, a leader. He was so impressive that when he died, the city of Boston closed down and declared a holiday so that everyone who wanted could attend his funeral. A man of great wisdom, he once said this, that we should pray not for easier lives, but pray instead to be stronger people. He said, do not pray for tasks equal to your strength, but pray instead for strength equal to your task. In the wisdom that he was passing on, he was uh, citing wisdom that actually predates him by millennia. For the ancient rabbis loved to talk about Psalm 18, verse 33, where the psalmist says, Make my feet like the feet of a deer. What you have to understand is if you've been to Israel, you'll notice that sometimes on the hillside or what we might call the, the, the uh, desert uh, mountains, there will be uh, deer. And the hill is almost like this, almost perpendicular. And the deer are standing on it almost as if to defy gravity. And what you come to find out is God has made their feet in such a way that they can stand on a path where no one else can stand. And what the rabbi said is when the psalmist said, make my feet like the feet of a deer, that the psalmist was asking God not for an easy path, but for a feet that would fit the path. Not for an easy life, but to the kind of strength and skill it would take to get through the life that's been given us. I say all this because it's become obvious to me that adversity and difficulty are just part of the life of faith. That because we believe in God, because we love God, because we are in Christ, it does not mean that all of our pain and struggle and suffering has been taken away from us. I mean, just look at all the people of God who struggled in their life. We start with Abraham, the father of the Jews. Abraham went many years without a child. And then finally, uh, when the promised child arrived, uh, some years later, God would ask Abraham to take that child and sacrifice him back to God as a test. Not only was Abraham promised children, Abraham was promised land, lots of it in the promised land. But when he died, all he owned was a little cave in which he buried his wife, Sarah. A lot of struggle in Abraham's life. And then one of Abraham's descendants, Joseph, you'll remember the story of Joseph, left to die in a pit by his brothers and then sold into slavery. And then he finds himself uh, in the bottom of a dungeon. So much struggle and adversity in his life. And then Moses, it's not enough that Moses has to contend with the evil Pharaoh. 
But Moses' own people during the course of his leadership rebel against him no less than 12 times. His own people turn on him. That's the life of faith that he lives. King David kills Goliath as a young boy. The prophet Samuel is sent to his house and the prophet Samuel anoints David as the king. But David will spend a lot of the years of his young adulthood running for, um, for his life from the current king Saul. A, Saul to, a king to whom David is very loyal. He fights Saul's battles for him. Not just Goliath, but other battles against the Philistines. He's not seeking the crown. And yet Saul tries to kill him and chases him all around the country. This is the life of faith. And then you come to the prophets. And the prophets know of a land that God wants filled with justice and beauty, mercy, compassion. And the people don't respond to the vision of God. And the prophets struggle because the, the people don't respond. And because the people, when they do respond, respond in anger against the prophets. That's the life of faith. And then here's Isaiah. Isaiah 63, most scholars believe, is, is written to address a time when the people who have been enslaved, first by the Babylonians, then by the Persians, are finally allowed to come back home to Jerusalem. And when they get home, it's a wreck. The temple is destroyed. The city walls are down. It's no longer the emerald city of which they had long dreamt. It's in ruins. And to these people... Isaiah must bring a word. And in Isaiah 63, he brings them a word. And the word as, is, as Dinah says, he spends time asking them to walk backward, to remember all the kindnesses of the Lord. And then he says, in your distress, God is distressed. Notice what he doesn't say is, God doesn't want you to have distress, or God's going to take all your distress away from you. Isaiah doesn't say that. The people of faith have always experienced struggle Adversity, difficulty. Jesus himself will be criticized. He'll be betrayed. He'll be crucified. And he's God's son. What makes any of us think we get a pass out of adversity or struggle? Jesus even not only experienced it, even predicted it. One of the few predictions we know Jesus made for sure, and this is what he said in the Gospel of John. In this world you will have, anybody? Trouble. That's his prediction. You can take Jesus' word for it. Adversity and struggle. I, I pass this on this morning, not, not to be negative, but just because uh, to let you know that that is part and parcel of our life of faith. Because when we assume that struggle and adversity are not part of our faith and struggle and adversity hit, then we can only draw one of two conclusions. There's something wrong with us or there's something wrong with God. I've been pastor here long enough to watch people walk with their heads up faithfully and uh, persistently through times of tremendous struggle. But I've also been pastor long enough to watch people at the first sign of trouble, trouble drop everything that looks like their faith and head in another direction. It's important for us to know that adversity and struggle, pain and loss, we are not exempted from as people of God. So my thought is, if that's the case, then there must be something that can come from the struggle and adversity of our life. Something must come from it that's beneficial in some way. Now, please understand me. I'm not saying that whatever struggle that you're going through or you've experienced, that God caused it. I'm not saying that. 
And I'm not saying I can completely explain the struggle that you're experiencing at the moment. I am merely suggesting that if struggle and adversity are the part of the life of faith, there must be something that comes from it. For years, the great rabbis taught, and Jesus would have known this, that the most significant thing in life is not the bad stuff that happens to you. The significant thing in life is what you do afterwards, what you do in response. That's the defining moment of your life. And Rabbi Kushner, for the other things he might have had wrong, had that right in when bad things happen to good people. That it is our response that's the defining moment. So I think when we respond faithfully, I look at a couple of things that might just happen for us. The first one is this. I have learned that faithfully persevering through struggle, adversity, and loss makes me a better stronger person. There's one thing that happens to all of us who suffer. We change. We may not like to ask for the change, but it comes. We may not change for the better, but we change. But I believe there is a possibility that we can change for the better. One of the people who's very important to me is a writer named Gerald Sitzer, and I've told you about him before. He's returning from a mission trip, from a mission trip, in a van that he's driving, and his family's in the van, including his wife, his children, and his mother-in-law. A drunk driver crosses over and hits them head on. In that accident, more than 15 years ago now, his wife died, one of his daughters died, and his mother-in-law died. As he struggled to understand and live through this, he wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. And one of the things that he said is this, that the soul is like elastic, and it can be stretched, and it can grow through loss and struggle and suffering. We can change. We can become deeper and better. It's not guaranteed, but it can happen. A number of you know that through a four-year period, um, my brother uh, died suddenly of a stroke. My mother died, got Alzheimer's and died. My father died. And I will tell you this, that because of those events, I'm a different person than I was four years ago. I, I hope better. And what happens when I'm sitting with someone in their struggle and adversity, I know it. I get it. I used to get it here. Now I get it here. And I'm different. And that difference would have never happened apart from the adversity that my family and I walked through. And then um, about a decade ago, nine years ago, I went through a a three-month kind of a period of being lost in the woods. And every morning I would get up and not want to come to here, um, to go to work, to do anything that was productive or, or helpful. And, and, uh, and after three months, you know, I got through that and God got me through it. But I'll tell you what has happened. In the last few years, God has given me many opportunities to sit down with pastors and church leaders. And I can listen to them. And I can help them and be with them in ways that I never could before. All because of the stretching that has come through adversity and struggle. So one of the things that happens is we can become a better person. The other thing that happens when we go through adversity and struggles, I think when all the false securities are stripped away from me, I'm left with God. And I will, by that fact, be drawn closer to God if I'm no longer clinging to the old basis of security. You know, for the longest time, I think I lived in my own little tiny bubble. And and when people would die uh, prematurely or they became ill or something would happen, I thought, well, yes, that happened to them. But but that doesn't happen in my family. 
That doesn't happen here. And I lived with a sort of naive security that wasn't based on God and deep faith in God. It was just based on luck. And then I'd skated through thus far. But when those things get stripped away and you come face to face with no security but God and the presence of God, you become deeper and you begin to experience God in a new way. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful book called A Grief Observed. Uh, Lewis, uh, for many years, um, uh, was not married, a bachelor. And then he found the love of his life, joy, and they got married. But not too long after, their happy marriage was, uh, was ruined. She got cancer and died. And he struggled to understand this. And he wrote this book, A Grief Observed, and he made a couple th- observations. The first one was this. He said, I realized eventually the problem wasn't God. The problem was my expectation that somehow I thought because I was a person of faith, I was above and beyond all of this stuff. And then he said the second thing, which is very helpful. He said, pain was God's megaphone. Pain was the way that God got my attention. We can draw closer to God in our adversity than I think we can draw and than any other way we can draw close to God. When everything else gets stripped away and we stay faithful, we are left only with God. Ray Vanderdan loves to talk about that if you look at the Old Testament, the vast preponderance preponderances of people hearing God's voice and seeing God's miracles take place in the desert where they don't have shelter, a ready food supply, an easy water source. When all that's been taken away from them, they see and experience God so much more clearly. I think that that can happen. We can become stronger, better, and closer to God. But note this. Isaiah 63 says, in their distress, God too was distressed. One of the things I've become very aware of is that God's plan is not always to prevent our pain, but God's plan is always to be present in our pain. God in the midst of our pain. That's what Christmas is about. It's called incarnation. God becomes flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. What happens? Jesus comes, there's still war. Jesus comes, there's still crucifixions. Jesus comes, people still sin. But now God is right smack in the middle of it. With God's people. Present to all that has happened. And I believe that is God's plan. Not always to prevent my pain, but always to be present in my pain. Yesterday we had a family reunion of sorts. And uh, one of the things we did is we had a, a number of, well, let's call them heirlooms from my parents' house. That none of, nobody had claimed yet. They're not favorite heirlooms for anyone. But they're sitting in my house. So my wife comes up with the idea that we will have a drawing. And every child and grandchild over 21 will get one of these nine heirlooms that no one has claimed. And so we had uh, a white elephant exchange, if you will, yesterday. Not everyone could be there, but my wife sent them an email and said this, you need not be present to win. (laughs) You will get one of these heirlooms. Well, that's not how God operates. God said, you must be present to win. I will be with you in your pain. Uh, Mary lived in a small town and Every week, Mary stood in line at the small town post office to buy stamps. She'd buy four. She'd buy six. She'd buy two. 
Finally, the postal worker said, you know, Mary, there's a machine out in the lobby. You don't have to stand in this line every time you come. And Mary said, yeah, I know that, but the machine will never ask me, how's your arthritis? There's something about that personal presence. And I believe God's plan is to be personally present. But make no mistake, in the Messiah Jesus, God's ultimate plan is to remove all pain one day. And when that day comes, we will be so ready for that world because of the faithful way we have lived in this world. God's plan is to be present in the pain and one day to take away all pain. Nicholas Volterstorff is a wonderful theologian at Yale. Um, He wrote a book called Lament for a Son. His son uh, was 26 years old, climbing the Alps, and he died in a climbing accident. So in this book, Volterstorff struggles as a parent, as a Christian, as a theologian, and tries to figure out what's going on. And one of the things he said struck me so many years ago, and I've never yet forgotten it, and hope not to forget it. He said in the Bible, it's very clear that no one can look on the face of God and live. Right? No one can look God in the face and live. And he said, of course we believe that because God's uh, uh, glory is such, God's radiance is such that we just couldn't take it. And he's not arguing that. He said, but I've often wondered if the glory of God is not God's sadness. Because he said, God takes on all of the pain, the trouble, the broken dreams of God's people. So if you looked in the face of God, says Volterstorff, you would see the hurts and the suffering of every person who has ever lived, and you could not look at that and live. What, he said, if the glory of God was not just God's goodness, but the glory of God was God's compassion with all of the suffering. God is there experiencing all of our pain and one day planning to end it. A few years ago, there was a, uh, an accident in a coal mine in another country. And as the miners were trapped down the mine, they could hear above activity, people working to get them out. And then all of a sudden, the activity stopped. The activity stopped for 18 hours. They didn't hear a thing, couldn't see a thing. And they assumed Something had happened. People had given up. Maybe they thought they were already dead. What they didn't know was above ground, the machine that they were using with the large drill head was inappropriate. It broke. It couldn't stand the pressure. And they had to send off across the small country for a larger one to be fitted onto the machine to dig through the rubble. And it took 18 hours to get it. Above the ground for 18 hours, people are working feverishly to free them. But underground, they don't hear a thing or see a thing. Sometimes our life is like that. We experience struggle. We don't see anything. We don't hear anything. But the Bible tells us, above, God is surely working. Not only working to be present in us, but also to one day completely free us.